For me, the year 2000 is peak WWE. The company was at the height of their creativity and it converged with an excellent in-ring product too. The stories were great, the wrestling was great and the company was still riding a wave of Attitude Era mainstream popularity that remains unmatched to this very day. It was the year that everything came together for the company and it was magic to witness. In terms of the Monday Night War, WWE had turned the tables on WCW in spectacular fashion and had cemented themselves back as the number one wrestling promotion in North America. Never again would Raw lose to Nitro as the ratings gap widened. By the year 2000, the Attitude Era had been bedded in since around 1997, but by the end of the decade it had matured into its best version possible. The product evolved to be more grounded and watchable while still maintaining its edge. The show had become a mainstream hit and the superstars were mentioned in the same breath as other television stars of the time, even appearing on outside TV shows and even in movies. Head writer Vince Russo was one of the Attitude Era's architects. He was once praised for providing WWE with its outrageous new direction, but he defected to WCW towards the end of 1999 and the company was better off without him. Outrageous storylines like Al Snow being fed his pet dog by the big boss man and Val Venus almost having his pee-pee chopped off were scaled back to some degree thanks to Russo's absence, although Mae Young did admittedly give birth to a rubber hand in March 2000. One of those outrageous storylines occurred on the November 29th 1999 episode of Raw, when Stephanie McMahon was due to marry her sweetheart Test. What an incredible moment it was when Triple H interrupted the ceremony to announce that Stephanie was already married to him. Everyone was confused until Triple H played a video of him behind the wheel of a car with a passed out Stephanie McMahon in the driver's seat. Triple H just so happened to be in Las Vegas and at a drive-through wedding chapel. As the pastor read the vows, Triple H played the part of Stephanie in a squeaky voice accepting the marriage. Back on the stage, Triple H acknowledged, it's not if, but how many times did we? consummate the marriage. It was a fairly disgusting storyline, but if nothing else, it put in motion WWE's ultimate goal, which was to set up Triple H as the company's ultimate bad guy going in to the new millennium. By the end of the decade, Triple H had reached his final in-ring form as the Cerebral Assassin. Very few wrestlers have had the incredible character progression that has been afforded to Mr. Helmsley. From Greenwich snob upon his debut to immature frat boy in D-Generation X, Triple H evolved into the role he would go on to inhabit for years, that of sledgehammer-wielding heel. He was a proper old-school bad guy. Triple H had been feuding with Vince McMahon and this was the ultimate betrayal of marrying his daughter behind both his and her back, leading to a match between Vince McMahon and Triple H at the final pay-per-view of 1999, Armageddon. If Triple H was to win the match, then he would get a world title shot. If McMahon won, then the marriage would be annulled. 
Stephanie McMahon would interfere at the end of the match at Armageddon and turned against Vince, siding with Hunter in a shocking twist. Going into the year 2000, Triple H branded himself as The Game and entered an incredibly entertaining feud with Mick Foley. Their street fight at the Royal Rumble in January was one hell of a memorable way to kick off the new millennium. It was a violent match which Triple H would win to retain the title. The feud would continue into February at No Way Out. It was a Hell in a Cell match and Foley's career was on the line. The entire feud is still remembered fondly to this day and the reason for that is the unique chemistry that both men had with each other. Foley's part as the babyface provided the emotion and the gravitas, especially with his hard-fought career on the line, while Triple H nailed his role of brutal, uncaring bully with his boot in Foley's face. In reality, it was so important for this feud to go well for Triple H. A lot had been asked of the audience since his debut in 1995 with his multiple character changes. If this latest character of Cerebral Assassin was going to stick, he needed to be believable. In fact, this latest reinvention of his character was quite incredible. No longer was there a trace of the frat boy he inhabited as part of D-Generation X. In the year 2000, we got to see The Rock performing at his highest ever level as a babyface wrestler, thanks mostly to Stone Cold Steve Austin having to take time off. It felt like a disaster when Austin was forced to take time off during arguably the peak of his career in 1999 for neck surgery. As WWE was rebounding from the Monday Night War, a lot of stock was placed on Austin as the company's number one draw. It was always Vince McMahon's formula to run with one marketable megastar babyface at the top of the company, but that didn't account for injury. In truth, Austin's neck hadn't been right since 1997, when Owen Hart almost paralysed him after a botched pile driver. By 1999, the pain in his neck became insurmountable, and Austin had to take time off for surgery. And so, at the November 1999 Survivor Series, Austin was cleverly written off TV by being ran over in the parking lot. Austin would end up returning at the end of 2000 to resolve that, but in real life, he had to take nine months out for neck surgery. Luckily, The Rock was almost at Austin's level throughout 1999 in terms of popularity with the fans, and in 2000, that popularity would explode, breaking live attendance records and live gates. In retrospect, we can see the beginnings of The Rock's crossover into mainstream popularity in the year 2000. The Rock's rivalry with Triple H was a memorable headline feud for the World Championship, and it was made even more captivating thanks to their real-life heat between each other. Up until mid-1998, Triple H's best friend was Shawn Michaels. Michaels believed that The Rock would take Triple H's spot on the roster. The Rock never forgave Shawn Michaels for that treatment and always refused to work with him. Triple H, however, did get a pass, but the past issues that they had only emboldened their rivalry and made it more personal. In an interview, Triple H said, It's a funny thing, we weren't friendly. I don't know that I've ever eaten dinner with The Rock or gone out after the show with him or anything like that. We were in different circles, but man, my respect for him was unbelievable. Anytime I heard, hey, you're going to work with Rock, I'd be like, alright, this is going to be awesome. 
We would push each other. There was just this mutual respect, but based on our competitive natures, there was also always this intense rivalry. At the 2000 Royal Rumble in January, The Rock last eliminated The Big Show to secure a place in the WrestleMania main event. In fact, The Rock would headline 10 out of 12 pay-per-views in the year 2000, with 8 in a row from WrestleMania to no mercy. Out of all the years The Rock was a full-time wrestler, this year was when he was truly at his most electrifying. While the year 2000 had lots of memories to make it legendary, that year's WrestleMania was admittedly one of the weakest in memory. It was before the era of holding WrestleManias in stadiums and so it emanated from the unspectacular Arrowhead Pond in California in front of just 19,000 fans. Before Austin was put out of action, the rumoured original plan for WrestleMania was for Austin to face Triple H or for Austin to face The Rock. However, we ended up with an overcomplicated four-way elimination, no DQ match between The Big Show, Mick Foley, The Rock and Triple H. Even the original plan for this four-way match changed at the last minute, as according to Chris Jericho, he was supposed to be in the place of Mick Foley. Jericho was in the promotional material for the main event of the show, Instead, it was decided that Mick Foley's emotional retirement at the hands of Triple H the month before at No Way Out was rendered null and void when he decided to come back for one more match and one more payday alongside Linda McMahon. It felt like WWE panicked in the face of not having Austin in their main event and threw everything at the wall for this main event at WrestleMania. In the build-up, The Rock had been continuously screwed by Triple H and Stephanie, and him winning the Royal Rumble should have been his ticket to a one-on-one match against Hunter for the title. Instead, a situation was engineered where each of the four competitors had a McMahon in their corner. WWE were hell-bent on ensuring that Triple H was cemented as the number one heel in the company going forward, and so he would go on to retain the championship in the WrestleMania main event, becoming the first heel in WrestleMania history to do so. After the match, The Rock executed rock bottoms on Vince, Shane and Stephanie, and then issued a people's elbow to Steph. Triple H and The Rock's feud would reach its zenith a couple of months later at Judgment Day, where the men met in a thrilling 60-minute Iron Man match. As the clock ticked down, the result stood at 5 falls for Triple H and 5 falls for The Rock. In an incredible moment that had been teased for weeks beforehand, The Undertaker returned as we'd never seen him before. The American badass rolled into the arena on a motorbike before decimating the McMahon-Helmsley alliance, unfortunately getting The Rock disqualified, inadvertently allowing Triple H to pick up the win. Some fans don't like the biker era of The Undertaker and look at it with a bit of disgust, but for 14-year-old me and millions of other fans at the time, the American badass character was perfectly in tune with the new metal we were all listening to as his entrance music was provided by Limp Biscuit and later Kid Rock. That year's WrestleMania was a disappointment, considering that almost every pay-per-view in 2000 was excellent. However, there were a couple of standout matches that can't be ignored, such as the Triangle Ladder match for the Tag Team Championship between Edge and Christian, the Dudley Boys and the Hardy Boys. It was a captivating, violent ladder match that would be the precursor 
to many thrilling TLC contests in the coming years. Really, the risks being taken by these men was like nothing we'd ever seen before at the turn of the millennium and would make genuine superstars out of all six men. At SummerSlam in August, the three teams would go on to outdo themselves in the first ever TLC match. Considering how unevenly tag team wrestling has been presented by WWE over the decades, the tag team division reached its zenith in the year 2000, thanks to these superstars and their willingness to put their bodies on the line in these jaw-droppingly risky matches. The other match on the WrestleMania card worth talking about was the two falls triple threat match between Kurt Angle, Chris Jericho and Chris Benoit. The first fall of the match was for the Intercontinental Championship and the second fall was for the European Championship. The match itself was good, it would have been excellent if it was given, you know, more than 14 minutes, but for me, it's more about the competitors involved in the contest. Chris Jericho grew into the performer we always knew he could be in 2000. After spending months trying to get himself over in WCW, his signing with WWE in 1999 was seen as being a fresh start, somewhere that he would finally be appreciated. That didn't really happen to begin with as Jericho floundered in his first few months with the company, but as 2000 progressed he would win the European title and the Intercontinental Championship and even face Triple H for the world title. When I say that the Attitude Era matured in 2000, I wasn't just referring to storylines. One thing that had been seriously lacking over 1998 and 1999 was quality in the actual in-ring work, but thanks to the likes of these three men, that was remedied in the new millennium. Kurt Angle turned out to be a total revelation. He had genuinely transitioned from Olympic-level amateur wrestling into professional wrestling seamlessly in the first few months since his debut at the Survivor Series in 1999. Nobody had made the leap from genuine sportsperson to sports entertainer this successfully before, he took to it like a duck to water, and he provided us with quality in the ring that we'd never seen before. From Angle's characterization as stuck-up, chicken-shit heel, to his incredible in-ring talent, he really had it all, and would go on to prove himself throughout the year 2000, winning the King of the Ring tournament in June, and going on to win the WWE Championship at No Mercy in October. It was a rapid ascent for Angle, and another example of WWE strapping the rocket to somebody and not losing faith in them, making them a bona fide main event level superstar for the rest of their career. Angle took to the theatrical nature of the business like a duck to water too, and we witnessed one of the more memorable storylines in history, thanks to the love triangle between himself, Triple H and Stephanie McMahon. The only disappointment in that angle was that it ended too soon. Chris Benoit had entered WWE at the end of January amongst his former WCW cohorts in the Radicals. Benoit was joined by Eddie Guerrero, Dean Malenko and Perry Saturn, who had all asked for their WCW release at the same time. And they were a breath of fresh air to the roster when they debuted and helped to elevate the quality of wrestling on the show. Just like Chris Jericho, they'd all felt held down by the glass ceiling in WCW, and hoped to find their feet 
in the Federation. Eddie Guerrero was another one of those wrestlers that had legend written all over him. Again, just like Chris Jericho and Kurt Angle, his incredible in-ring performance ran neck and neck with his natural charisma. Die-hard fans were quick to label the Radicals as WCW rejects when they debuted, but it didn't take long for the group to shake that off. WWE fans took to Guerrero and Benoit particularly quickly, realising their incredible upside. Even Dean Malenko provided the light heavyweight title with some gravitas with his knockoff James Bond gimmick. 2000 wasn't without Steve Austin entirely, and his comeback was one of the most exciting events of the year. In real life, Austin had successfully healed from neck surgery, and on screen, he returned from being run over at the end of 1999, and naturally, he wanted answers. And so, we would get one of WWE's most memorable ever storylines. In one of his greatest ever roles, Mick Foley had been given the job of commissioner of the company, and by extension, the job of investigating who tried to kill Steve Austin. Was it The Rock? Maybe it was Shawn Michaels, or even Linda McMahon. The mystery attacker was eventually revealed to be Rikishi of all people who said that he did it for The Rock. Austin came back like a man possessed and beat seven shades of crap out of Rikishi at No Mercy in October before trying to run him over with his truck. The plan was for this to turn Rikishi into a credible main event heel, but after Rikishi had spent a couple of years messing around with Too Cool, it became quickly obvious that the fans weren't going to buy it. And so, a twist was concocted where it turned out that Triple H was responsible all along. The final pay-per-view of the year was Armageddon, and it featured one of my favourite Hell in a Cell matches ever. It was the first ever six-man contest with The Undertaker, The Rock, Triple H, Steve Austin and Rikishi challenging for Kurt Angle's world title, which he would retain. It was an awesome end to an incredible year of entertainment in WWE, a year that in my opinion remains unmatched.